A little different type of a message today. Um, If you'll recall, when we returned from Haiti in in February, uh, uh, I started a series on reaching out. Now, the the teaching rotation here is I start, I teach about once every month. Sometimes it extends to two months. And what I came to see is that I really didn't want this to be something that I said and you heard and that was it. I really felt like it was important that we get something from this overall. Because I was learning, and hopefully you've learned some things, about how to reach out to the poor without making it worse. And uh, therefore, at some point along the line, I started to develop a list of principles or insights. And so, what you have today in your handout is the compilation of those things. I've tried to distill about six messages down into the things that I think maybe we should get out of this, and there's probably many, many more. This is by no means a comprehensive list, certainly not perfect, and you may be helpful in improving it and helping us all understand what things should we be thinking about as we approach the whole topic of the poor, whether they're amongst us or they're in foreign lands. Uh, Certainly not a perfect list, but please, please look at it. Uh, Speaking of not being perfect, uh, Mike mentioned, and I I just want to encourage you, those teaching surveys uh, that are in your handout or your bulletin there, we really, really would appreciate you being brutally honest, okay? Seriously. Because we want to be effective. We want to be able to to reach people. We want it to mean something. So, it's all anonymous. You can say whatever you want to say on there about the teaching you get here at Lion and Land. But we would like to know Okay, we'd like to know from whence that suggestion comes. Okay, because we'd like to know if the young people think we ought to do more of this, and the older fogies like me think we ought to do more of this, and we might be able to do both, or we might be able to change some things. You know, we'd like to know if if the gals think that we're too hard on this, and the guys think we're too soft on that. We'd like to know. Now that that's not going to change, you know, our approach to the truth, but. We don't know that we're always in balance, and that's our goal. We appreciate you telling us. We, from time to time, will critique one another, which I think is helpful. But what you hear and what you perceive in your heart is what we're most interested in. So please, please fill one of those out. So if you look at the handout today that you got, uh, you'll notice something. You know, normally the, the format is three points. And when you got 17, you know you're in trouble. Okay? But please be patient. We're going to try to get through these, and we're not going to spend a lot of time. Again, this is a summary. And so try to remember what we talked about before in more uh, full explanation. But I'm trying to go through these so that we can summarize and maybe see what we need to figure out yet and how, more importantly, do we apply these things. Okay, so the first point on your sheet there should be that 
we serve and honor and praise a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. We are created in the image of God. Therefore, we are inherently relational beings, just like God. In 1 John 1, tells us that Jesus, the Word of life, was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So when our foundational relationships with God, with self, with others, and with creation function as their design, we experience life fully as God intended because we're doing what God created us to do. On to point two already. All right? But there was the fall. And because of the fall, sin focuses on pleasing self, resulting in a diminished sense of responsibility to provide for our own families and minister to others. Sin brought corruption, lust, greed, selfishness. And these qualities are non-relational or even anti-relational. Sin seeks only to please self and fails in the long run to do even that. Now, the devil has many co-conspirators and accomplices, even those who don't realize that's what they're doing. We at Lion and Lamb have been unashamed to say that the gospel, the word of God, applies to everything, including politics, and we have not been hesitant to blame politicians of all stripes and all parties for our state of rampant government welfare dependency. Anybody who's been in office in the presidency for the last 80 years shares some responsibility for this, including the people who've been in Congress. The policies used by our government while providing short-term relief for the needy have fostered dependency for some and weakened the very fabric of our society, creating a mentality of entitlement. If things don't go well, people and companies, and sometimes cities, and maybe even states, have turned not to God, but to the government for a handout or a bailout. Unless you've lived in a bubble for the last several years, you know that this dependency problem has been on steroids with our present government. At a minimum, we can say that this has created class division. We're divided as a nation when our government redistributes wealth by playing Robin Hood, robbing from the rich to give to the poor. It makes rich people and productive people resentful, which in turn brings reaction from the poor and the defenders of the welfare state and accusations of prejudice or racism, not to mention the subtle opiate of entitlement dependency. However, the evangelical church bears responsibility as well for bowing out of the biblical business of serving the poor as an overreaction to the social gospel of mainline denominations in the first half of the 20th century. Today, in our perhaps a right-hearted but wrong-headed approach, 
Christians often just mimic in their efforts what the government does to alleviate poverty. The Word of God, on the other hand, has a heightened sense of personal responsibility on the personal level. Okay? As Christians, we are certainly to be ready for Christ's return, but in the meantime, we are to serve Him before He comes. To the extent that we feed the hungry, are hospitable to strangers, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit those in prison, show compassion, and serve the least of these, we do it to Christ Himself. So what we do with our possessions, our time, our very lives, is evidence of what is inside of us. Like James tells us, works do not save us, but faith without works is dead. But a faithful walk does not stop there. Because what the Bible seems to say is that when we do all that is commanded of us, we are still just unprofitable servants. We, because we have only done that which was our duty to do. Our faith is increased when we don't just hold our own, but instead we go beyond the call of duty. Number three, the Word states unequivocally that mere talk, religious exhibits, you know, just going to church, events, even witnessing, handing out tracts, and even giving generously are not the complete message of the Gospel. In Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah reproved Israel for their sins and exhorted Israel to instead learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. But the people of Israel must have thought, you know, we're really doing okay by our worship of God because they just continued to practice the outward signs of religion They worshiped, they offered sacrifices, they celebrated holy days and feasts, they prayed and fasted in public demonstrations of humility, yet God did not notice or bless them. So they asked, why have we fasted and do you not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and do you not notice? Now normally, we kind of think that overt sin is the cause of God withholding His hand of blessing. In fact, it says in Isaiah 59, Your iniquities have made separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. However, in the chapter before, the prophet Isaiah tells us that it's not necessarily their overt sin, but their superficial and hypocritical response that held back God's blessing. There it says, Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bread? Will you call this a fast? Even an acceptable, acceptable day to the Lord? Isaiah Instead, suggest, is not 
this the kind of fasting I have chosen. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like a dawn and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and He will say, Here I am. If, if, you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself, some versions say, pour yourself out, others say, draw out your soul for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday sun. So, what we've got to ask ourselves is, is what Israel was doing with their worship while neglecting the poor much different than what the church does today. Have we not all subtly fallen into the trap of thinking and perhaps even saying, the poor? Oh, no, that's the responsibility of the government. Now, if God's people want to be successful, they want to experience His blessing, and they want their prayers answered, and you desire, you and I desire His guidance, we've got to to do more than just show up. We have to actually do something with the lives that we've been given. Isaiah makes it clear that God was disgusted with Israel for making only an outward show. He called them Sodom and Gomorrah. Not because of what they did, but because of what they failed to do. Care for the poor, loose the chains of injustice, clothe the naked, and spend themselves on behalf of the hungry. Number four. God's Word, particularly in the New Testament, should be an embodiment. The church should be an embodiment of Jesus Christ, who loved us, declared to the poor, the lame, the leopard, in word and deed, that his kingdom brings healing and finally he laid down his life. In other words, there was talk, certainly, and there was walk. And this talk and walk nature of his ministry and the ministry of the church started early on. Luke 9 recounts that when Jesus first sent out his 12 disciples, he sent them to preach the the kingdom of God and heal the sick. When the church was forming in Acts 4, Luke tells us that There were no needy persons among them, among the brothers and the sisters. This seems to relate back to Deuteronomy 15, which said there should be no poor among you in Israel. Clearly, if we go by the Bible, the church, you and I, are to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they're in need. If there's any doubt about this, consider 1 John 3. We know love by this. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Truly, our walk talks louder than our talk talks. 
that same care and concern should spill over to others outside the body. That is, if we want them to know the love of Christ in us. The church is to embody Jesus Christ by doing what He did. Declare, not just in word, but in deed as well, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Number five. In response to the fall, God gave us that four-letter word, work, as a necessary part of our reality. And it's by the sweat of our faces that we receive daily bread. Our foundational relationships work well. People glorify, when, when our, uh, people glorify God by working and supporting themselves, their families, and helping others with the fruit of their work. The first of these relationships is with God. Our purpose, if you've been catechized, is to glorify and to enjoy God forever. We're to serve and worship our Creator through our work. And work is a form of worship. The second relationship is with ourselves. Every human being is unique as a creation of God. And each of us has an inherent worth and dignity. And we are to reflect God's being. We should accept the way that God makes us and fulfill our responsibility under God to work so that we can at least provide for ourselves. But the responsibility doesn't stop there. Because we have a relationship with others. We said no man is an island. We are to know, love, and encourage one another. In addition, we're to look out for one another, particularly the weak, vulnerable, and the poor. Because we're all made in God's image, we value and protect all human life. God, through His Word, commands each of us to have a purpose that relates to others. And productive work gives us the means to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves in immediate crisis and at times even longer. Finally, we have a relationship with creation. God provides the resources necessary to sustain ourselves through the fruits of our labor. Bill taught upon this uh, just a few weeks ago. The law of sowing and reaping applies both to the physical and the spiritual dimensions of our lives. Mankind is a steward, and we're to protect, subdue, and manage God's creation. And that, of course, means we work. Now, there's a there's a caveat here. I think if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we are not saying you're commanded to become a workaholic and to neglect your family and other responsibilities. God gave us work, yes, but He also gave us relationships and ministry and we're to worship Him and thank God what I hope to do today, He gave us rest. Okay, But if we love others, our responsibility, each individual Christian, is to set an example of productivity and not become a burden to others to the extent possible. God keeps all of us accountable through a very, very simple principle. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's huge. Why hasn't our government figured this out. But more importantly, why haven't Christians figured this out? 
Because we as Christians, just like the government, violate this principle whenever we simply hand a poor person food or money if he has the ability to work and earn for himself. Not only that, but we rob, we steal from that very person the dignity, the self-acceptance and respect that he could earn by providing for himself and his own family. Worse yet, we create, we help create a debilitating dependency on others. What kind of love is that? When this practice continues, particularly when it's institutionalized, a.k.a. government, it can create generational hopelessness. The stated goal of our welfare system is to provide for the vulnerable, often women and children. But the American experience is that if we want to remove the motivation to work, all we got to do is simply give handouts, a check. While some only use a government assistance as a temporary stopgap after a crisis, I think it is beyond dispute that our government has created generational poverty by robbing people of the motivation to work contrary to biblical principle. There's another casualty, of course, and that would be the family. The concepts of the head of the household is almost foreign to many welfare recipients. This, again, right-hearted, wrong-headed approach to poverty alleviation by our government literally emasculates much of the male population and renders them irrelevant to their very own families. Remember, it's not dad who brings home the bacon. It's really Uncle Sam. Again, one's worldview makes a difference. Our government, with its faith in man's reasoning, while no doubt helping some people in need, has managed to decimate one of the foundational institutions of our society, particularly in the minority communities. This all in the name of helping women and children. Now, there's nothing wrong. In fact, it is a duty to help others in need due to crisis. But when that immediate need is over, and, but we, and we don't change our approach, and instead we stay in a crisis mode, we, Christians, the church, and Christian organizations, do the very same thing that, with the very same consequences to the poor. The difference is, between us and the government, we know better. We are the ones who are aware of and trying to live by biblical principle. We really have no excuse. Number seven. Despite the fall, Christ not only creates all things visible and invisible, but He sustains and reconciles all things to Himself. And when we minister to the poor, all of creation matters. Family, government, business, culture, personal character. And we've got to address all those things if we're going to truly alleviate poverty. Of course, our tendency is to focus on the physical through money and food and medical assistance. But poverty affects and is affected by all aspects of life. The evangelical church has struggled finding the balance to address the whole of creation. We mentioned earlier that the, back in the first part of the 20th century, a lot of the mainline denominations started emphasizing righting wrongs and social injustices. And 
the evangelicals at that time reacted to focus solely on personal salvation, evangelism. Examples of this are some of the great evangelists, like Billy Graham, who packed auditoriums and stadiums for decades with his evangelical crusades aimed solely at personal salvation. Now note, I'm no Graham detractor, you know. Uh, 20-some years ago, my family went over to Abilene, and Billy Graham spoke at the 100th year anniversary of Eisenhower's birth. When you think about it, I think he, he influenced all the presidents from uh, Truman through George W. Bush. That's huge. He had a huge role. Uh, you know, used by God in many different ways. And I'll just a little plug here. If you haven't seen this, uh, Billy's 95th birthday is this coming Thursday. There's a special on, I think it's the Fox TV networks. I encourage you that evening to watch that. Apparently it's going to be good. Now, some have compared Billy Graham's individual gospel thrust to Martin Luther King's social gospel emphasis and suggested that if the two approaches could be combined, we might actually have a complete gospel message. Just think of how much more transformative their respective ministries would have been if Graham and other evangelists had not been so apolitical and had addressed more of the social issues enslaving the poor like welfare dependency. And King, for his part, had also focused on personal salvation and responsible Christian living instead of just social injustice. Now, I know that sometimes a man or a woman are called just to do one thing. Think how different our world would be today if they had formed the King-Graham Crusades together and they addressed all of creation and all of these issues together? Maybe, maybe the pendulum is swinging back now. Franklin Graham seems to have got the other side of it. And I don't know a lot about his ministry, and I can't say for sure. I mean, just last night our home group filled the boxes and that Elizabeth's encouraging us to do good things. My hope is that Franklin will strike the balancing truth that God reconciles all things, both individuals and systems, to himself. And that should be our focus. Now, what this means for us is that we have to be aware of more than just relief of immediate crisis. It's fine and most appropriate to relieve those crises, but you and I will rarely encounter that. When we see ghettos and third world countries, what we see there is ongoing poverty, which is not the result of disaster, but of several causes. Some of it is personal character, like the sin of the poor, or the wrong worldview of the poor. Some of it is unjust or blind government welfare programs. Some of it is of our own making. Because we as Christians have created an expectation that we will provide for them, so why should they try to provide for themselves? Number eight, we're going to speed up here. People are multifaceted. You know, physical, spiritual, social, psychological... 
our ministry to them should be as well. We cannot heal the whole person by throwing money or even service at the poor. We must love them enough to lead them to reconciliation on all fronts. Number nine, poor people, communities, institutions, and cultures are part of God's creation. We've got to treat them with compassion and respect, especially in these poor communities in poor countries. We aren't bringing Christ to those communities. Jesus did that a long, long time before we did. And He upholds all things by the Word of God's power. We've got to be humble. We've got to rid ourselves of the arrogant attitudes that it is our wealth, our technology, our methods, and our efforts that ultimately rescue the poor. Number 10. There's a biblical definition of poverty. It's not the one that you would see in most government books. Broken relationships with God, self, others, and creation on both the personal and the systemic levels, which include economics, government, society, and faith. While we usually focus again on those material needs, we cannot neglect the other poverties if we wish to truly alleviate poverty. We also have to realize, number 11, that we are all poor if we're not experiencing the four foundational relationships in the way that God intended. The materially poor suffer a poverty of being by feeling inferior. And the materially rich, all of us, suffer a poverty of being, a poverty of feel, being excuse me, by feeling superior. Because the fall affects all relationships, we're all poor in the sense that we're not experiencing the four foundational relationships as God intended. Each one of us suffers from a poverty of spiritual intimacy, a poverty of being, a poverty of community, and a poverty of stewardship, and therefore we cannot experience the full joy God designed for those relationships. That poverty that results from these broken relationships can mean estrangement for God. It can mean lack of self-acceptance. It can mean guilt, disharmony with loved ones, and a lack of care or appreciation for the creation around us. But for many, for most of the world, outside of the United States, it includes material poverty. The point is that we, that until we understand that we're all broken, we're all poor, our ministry to what the North American church calls the poor will likely do more harm than good. Again, we learned before, what the researchers found universally was a feeling of shame, a poverty of being, as the universal experience of the materially poor throughout the world. Number 12. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a definition of poverty alleviation there. To move people closer to honoring God by living in right relationships with Himself, others, and the creation. So, poverty allevi alleviation is essentially the ministry of reconciliation. Number 13, we see a, a definition of material poverty alleviation. Working to reconcile the four foundational relationships so that the poor may fulfill their calling. The poor may fulfill their calling to glorify God through work to support themselves and their families to the extent possible. Number 14, our job as ambassadors and peacemakers is to reach out to share the love of Christ with anyone wandering aimlessly through life without hope or purpose, whether because of the shame of material poverty or the arrogance that comes with wealth. Number 15. 
Those who minister to the poor tend to serve and give generously. However, if we do not proclaim the good news, the gospel, we are simply hoarding praise and thanks for ourselves. Worse yet, we're communicating and even living a false worldview. That Jesus saves souls, but poverty alleviation, that's really fixed by our solutions, our know-how, our technology, our medicine. Whenever we minister to the poor, there must be a clear declaration that knowing Christ as Savior is the only way to, tr- to truly heal relationships. Our ministry is solely by God's hand and His grace. And He must receive the praise and the glory, not us. Number 16. To accomplish this in spirit and truth, we've got to have an attitude of humility, meekness, the attitude of Christ. And our motivation must be solely to make peace between God and man. Now this brings me to what I would have to say is a hard saying. Uh, There are two sides to our response to the needs of the poor. The first is that we must all be soft-hearted. This involves the emotional. We all tend to be pretty emotional in dealing with these issues. And certainly that's the approach of most, if not all, the mailings that you and I get from mission organizations. And I want you to understand there's nothing wrong with compassion for the plight of the poor. You know, in this series, we've, we've spent not a small amount of time reviewing how the Christian life necessarily involves reaching out in love and compassion for the poor in the world. And this is especially true when personal or financial disaster hits or with the truly disabled. But while we must be soft-hearted, we must also be at the very same time hard-headed. Please hear me out. We must face the reality of human nature. Many Christians, while generous in helping others do it with money, some even go to poor communities or countries to serve. And it's a fair question. Isn't it good enough to just be nice, to give money, clothing, clothing, food, medicine, or health care, build uh, housing projects, churches, medical clinics for people? How can it be wrong to feel so good about giving and serving? Let me make some observations here. You know, it's not about us. It's not really about how you and I feel about ourselves. Sure, I do feel good when I can help someone. But that should not be my goal. My goal should instead be to help others accept themselves and their responsibility before God to provide for themselves and their families. It does help to eliminate some guilt. And certainly it's so much easier just to give and in some cases to serve. But our obligation goes much further. Secondly, That approach uh, ignores human 
nature, our fallen human nature. People who have grown accustomed to receiving the basic necessities from others have little motivation to be productive. In fact, they can even come to see receiving from others as normal, a way of life. This is true in the United States. When children grow up seeing their parents open envelopes with welfare checks month after month, year upon year, as well as people in poor countries who have learned simply to just wait for the next well-meaning, smiling group of Christian missionaries or the shipment from the Americans. It all has the same effect. Jacques Ellul, a French philosopher and theologian, said it this way, almsgiving affirms the superiority of the giver who thus gains a point on the recipient, binds him, demands gratitude, humiliates him, and reduces him to a lower state than he had before. Now, Robert Lupton, who is extremely active in ministry to the poor, and I think it's in the Atlanta area, wrote a book called Toxic Charity. And after reading Elul's statement, he started to pay attention to the responses of the poor as they used his own church's ministries to the poor. And here's what he said. I noticed how seldom recipients gave me direct eye contact. I watched body language as I handed out boxes of groceries from our food pantry. Head and shoulders bent slightly forward. Self-effacing smiles. Meek thank yous. I observed too how quickly recipients' response to charity devolved from gratitude to expectation to entitlement. Then Lupton looked inward. He said, I expected gratitude in exchange for my free gifts. I actually enjoyed occupying the superior position of giver, though I covered it with a carefully with a facade of humility. I noticed my irritation at those who voiced their annoyances when free food stocks ran low. He also grew tired of sifting through the half-truths and the manipulations of the ploys of these recipients who were looking for charity. His observation of his personal ministry exposed an unhealthy culture of dependency. So he started looking elsewhere and found the same dynamic worldwide, whether overseas missions or inner city service projects. Quote, wherever there was sustained one-way giving, unwholesome dynamics and pathologies festered under the cover of kind-heartedness. This is the poverty of being that we have discussed. And it infects not just the receiver, but the giver as well. Most importantly, this view of charity is not biblical love. Now, it's not surprising that our government has created this mess we call dependency and generational hopelessness. What is surprising is that Christians, Christian organizations and churches, do the same in their attempts to minister to the poor. It's not biblical love that is born out of an attitude of arrogance and superiority. It's not biblical love to make people feel inferior and cause them to give up on their responsibility before God to be productive, provide for their own, and help others. 
Now, some of you may know that I'm a military guy. And I know that that can be a hindrance or an obstacle to such things as creativity and flexibility and sensitivity. Okay? But there might be at least one good thing to be learned from the military approach. You see, the military always has a mission. And all their efforts and attention are directed towards the mission. Our mission as Christians, whether wealthy or poor, must be what our attention and our efforts are directed towards. We must find the best way to complete the whole mission, not just intermediate and in, or implied missions. There must be compassion and emotion. Personally, it was because of emotion that I even got stuck, or I even stuck my hard head into this topic. When I took a work break and sat down by the clinic of the orphanage in, in Haiti last January, and those kids started to crawl all over me. Begging for my attention and small touches of affection, I lost it. I looked up to God and I asked, what can we do to really help these people? But when I read of the experiences of many who have been ministering to the poor and actually looked honestly at what the Word says, I found out that what passes for ministry and may be very well born out of compassion, but is really not genuine love at all. The bottom line is, Ministry to the poor is much more complicated than giving money and food. We must think it through, assess each situation, and determine if it calls for immediate relief or rehabilitation or development. All very different. We must consider all the factors, including whether our ministry is helping or hurting the recipients long term. If we really want to be obedient, if we really care for and love others, we must be more hard-headed and intentional in how we minister. My hope today is for each of you to actually look at the handout, improve it, offer suggestions, and help us apply it in finding the best way to accomplish our mission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. And lo, praise God, I am with you. I'm with you, rich American Christians. I'm with you, poor inner city believers. I'm with you, destitute Haitian saints. Even to the end of the age. Lord God, You are a great and awesome God, and we are small, feeble, ignorant people. Lord God, we need your wisdom. We want to obey, and sometimes we just don't know how. But Lord God, please help us to pay attention. Help us to get beyond the convenience of giving a handout and saying, God bless you. Help us to do something to actually change the lives of the needy around us. And help them to know that they are one of your creatures, that they are precious, that they have value, that they are great in your sight, and you love each one of them as well. 
Father, we give you all praise and ask that you would not let us, let us just forget this, but instead to apply it in small ways in our neighborhoods, in larger ways in our communities, and maybe even on the international stage. Father, you love us, and we, we know that. We will come before you shortly. You loved us so much that you gave your only son for us. There is no greater love. Amen.